Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Nancy McLean, whose book is titled Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. Nancy McLean has written four other books, Freedom is Not Enough, The Opening of the American Workplace, Behind the Mask of Civility, The Making of the Second Ku Klux Klan, two textbooks, one on the history of the women's movement and the other on the history of the American conservative movement. And she's a professor at Duke University. Democracy in Chains is up for a National Book Award. Nancy McLean, who was James Buchanan? How did you find him? The third question, which is part of this, is what exactly is your thesis here? James Buchanan was a Nobel Prize-winning political economist, won the Nobel Prize in 1986. He was the first U.S. Southerner to win the Nobel Prize. He was also unusual in having spent all of his career in public institutions, mainly in Virginia. I had never heard of him when I started the research that ultimately became this book. I actually was looking at the state of Virginia's massive resistance to Brown versus Board of Education, and Virginia in the 1950s, particularly 1955, was leading the wider white South in massive resistance to the Supreme Court on a constitutional theory inherited from the South Carolinian antebellum senator John C. Calhoun. Anyway, so I was following that, and I learned that vouchers, that tax-subsidized school vouchers, were central to massive resistance, and that intrigued me. And then I learned that Milton Friedman, the Chicago-trained free market fundamentalist, had made his first case for vouchers in 1955, and the full knowledge of how they would be used in the South. So I began thinking, hmm, well, this is an interesting story that we haven't heard about this era in the 50s in which it actually touched a powerful nerve in the South and began the process that pivoted the Republican Party to the South. So again, I'd never heard of Buchanan, but I came across him in a footnote, and then I learned he had played an important role in shaping the Chilean so-called Constitution of Liberty under Augusto Pinochet's dictatorship in the 1970s. He actually went 1980. And so I started becoming interested in him, too. And then I moved to North Carolina in 2010, when a new Republican majority in the state, driven by the Tea Party, began implementing a radical program of change that I could see was shaped by James Buchanan's ideas. So I became interested in that. As for the thesis of the book, we've heard a lot about Charles Koch's money and how that is reshaping our politics. What we haven't heard much about is the ideas that are guiding that effort to radically transform our politics that have made that extreme right-wing donor money so effective in the years since 2010. I argue that it is Buchanan's school of thought, Virginia political economy, as it's sometimes called, or public choice thought, that is guiding this Koch effort to shackle democracy in a whole variety of ways that we can talk about. Hillary Clinton, in her failed bid to create a health program in the United States, began talking about a vast right-wing conspiracy. 
what is the relationship between what she was talking about and what you are talking about? And we'll put big quotes around the word conspiracy because Mm -hmm. as you argue, a conspiracy needs to be kind of illegal Mm -hmm. and this isn't. Yes. I'm glad you asked about that because it's so interesting for those of us who were politically engaged in the 90s when Hillary Clinton said that there was a vast right-wing conspiracy out to undermine Bill Clinton's presidency. Many people did not take her seriously and saw her as sort of, you know, trying to rescue her husband's fate, save him from his own actions. But in fact, looking at this history and having gone into the archives as I have, she was really on to this project that I describe in my book, which was getting going in earnest in the 1990s. And particularly, it was the SCAFE Foundation was really crucial in this. And they were actually funding Buchanan's operation at Virginia. And this whole Koch project was really getting started in the mid to late 1990s. So she was on to something. She just didn't know what it was or where it was coming from or what to call it. I recall hearing a lot about a meeting between SCAFE and Norquist Mm -hmm. back in the 90s. And The name Koch and, of course, the name Mm -hmm. Buchanan didn't appear, and it seemed as if Richard Mellon Scaife was the man behind Mm -hmm. all of this leading up to Rupert Murdoch and Fox News. But this goes deeper. So let's go back a little bit. You make the claim that Buchanan was working off the work of a 19th century man named John C. Calhoun and that he was the real forebear of this. And the thing about Calhoun is he was a slaveholder, and he fought for slavery, Mm -hmm. which puts white supremacy at the heart of this economic movement, or does it? Well, that's an interesting question. First of all, it wasn't just me who said that Buchanan's ideas resemble John C. Calhoun's. Two of Buchanan's colleagues at George Mason University actually said anachronistically that John C. Calhoun was a precursor, was their word, a precursor to Buchanan's public choice theory. These two colleagues of Buchanan also said the two systems of thought had the same purpose and effect. Now, they were careful to try to dispose of the issue of slavery, but basically, what Calhoun was promoting in two long treatises about politics, trying to reinterpret the American Constitution in a states' rights vein, he was trying to insulate this system of capitalism, of racial capitalism in the South that was the most profitable form of capitalism in the country at that point. There were more millionaires in Mississippi than New York City in 1860. And Calhoun was a very smart man, and he could see that the South was becoming, the white South, and particularly the planter class, was becoming outnumbered both nationally in government as the country filled up, there was immigration, etc. And also, even in the South, there were, say, yeomen who wanted to tax planters for things like public schools, roads, etc. And so Calhoun was a precocious libertarian and has been cited as such by someone else that Charles Koch funded. And his idea, his basic idea was a strange class theory that said exploitation happens not in the realm of production, as, say, Karl Marx would have said, but actually in the realm of taxation. 
it's, it's the germ of the makers and takers vocabulary that we see today. So that was a kind of kinship between John C. Calhoun and the libertarian tradition writ large. And then Buchanan also came to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville in 1956, just as John C. Calhoun's ideas about the Constitution were being revived to fight Brown versus Board of Education. So the connection between Buchanan's ideas and Calhoun's ideas comes from many, many different directions, but definitely it was in the air as he was setting to work in Virginia in 1956 and forward. And what is the relation between that and what is called public choice economics? So Buchanan was trained at the University of Chicago in the economics department there among some of the people that we think of now as Chicago School Economics. Milton Friedman was actually a young guy. Buchanan's advisor was more senior and distinguished. But basically, as you know, many listeners will know, the Chicago School was promoting a kind of extreme version of adoration of the unrestrained market. What Buchanan took from that was the economics, but he applied that kind of economic analysis to politics, and that's what he called public choice theory. Of course, there are other kinds of economic analyses of politics, but Buchanan's particular version was to say that every public actor needs to be understood as an individual pursuing his or her own self-interest and wanted to tear down, those are his words, the idea that people in public life were actually cared about the public interest or were serving the common good, and he saw that as essentially a mask for the pursuit of personal interest. Which ties in, I guess, with the philosophy of Ayn Rand, right? Well, it is interesting. I never saw Buchanan being an enthusiast of Ayn Rand, the libertarian who drew so many people, young men, I should say, in particular young white men, into libertarianism through her novels. But certainly the students who joined his program, the graduate students, many of the young men apparently wore the Ayn Rand symbol, the dollar pin on their ties. You know, these were days when, you know, the University of Virginia had only men and white men, and they wore these dollar sign tie pins. And certainly Ayn Rand was important in the Coke network. Apparently there's a big portrait of her in the Cato Institute. So I think she's very important for, as someone has said, as, as a kind of a gateway drug for bringing people into the movement. And that being the case, you could also say Buchanan is the advanced course. So the Koch Network doesn't advertise Buchanan, although some of its academic grantees, one of them runs something called Buchanan Camp in the summer for operatives, but it is not the, the thing that pulls in the masses. The masses, well, that's another story which we'll get to in a little bit. But where does the Mont Pelerin Society fit in? Because that's an international group that Buchanan eventually joined and he didn't control, but he sort of had a massive effect on it. Yes, yeah, so the Mont Pelerin Society was a set up in 1947 by a couple of key libertarian economists and thinkers, Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, and Buchanan's own advisor, Frank Knight, was the only American. They set it up in the wake of the Second World War, of course, Nazism, communism, etc. But as many people have observed, they seemed more worried about social democracy in the West than about some of these other formations. And they were convinced that somehow social democracy or the New Deal in the U.S. was going to be this slippery slope to, in Hayek's phrase, the road to serfdom, to a kind of totalitarian future. So this was a group of thinkers primarily who came together in 1947, but they were always supported by right-wing businessmen. 
Was there any relationship between them and the Nazi regime that had just ended two years earlier? Not to my knowledge. Well, I don't know. Somebody else might find differently, but I don't think so. But anyway, so they started work in 1947 and were primarily U.S. and European-based. Now it's actually international, you know, and crosses all the globe. And it's also, by the way, now chock full of Koch operatives from the various organizations he funds, including many sources of climate science denial. Buchanan was invited to join in 1957, just after he had set up this Center for the Study of Political Economy and Social Philosophy at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And he later became the president in 1986, which is also when he won the Nobel Prize. So he had a deep history with the institution and continued to work with it until his death in 2013. Well, the reason I brought up the Nazis is because we're talking about Europe and we're talking about Europeans. The world didn't start in 1947. They're willing to talk about the New Deal, Mm -hmm. but you had a fascist totalitarian state and various elements of it in Europe that resulted in World War II. How could that not be something people would look at? Well, they did look at that. In Hayek's analysis, his argument was that essentially it was a mistake to see fascism and communism as somehow in opposition. In fact, in his view, they came from, and I think this might even be his language, the same germ. And the germ that these Mont Pelerin Society people pointed to was what they called collectivism. And the idea that people would come together in groups and that they would make claims on the state and that the state would expand to meet these various demands from groups. So they wanted to see this radically individualized world where that wouldn't happen. But from the beginning, it was an anti-democratic project in the sense that Hayek pointed out, he said, the problem is 90 percent of the people want the government to do these things. And they certainly wanted it in post-war Europe, in Britain and in France and in Germany and in Italy, places that had been devastated by the war. Of course, people looked to governments to build up what became the welfare states of the post-war world. But that did not sit well with these thinkers or with the businessmen, American businessmen who were funding them. Well, if they had gotten their way, Europe would have been in ruins for decades. I believe that's so. And part of the reason I feel so strongly about getting the story of this book out and reaching American audience, well, audiences anywhere with it, is precisely because I quite agree. I think that this vision of the world that the Mont Pelerin Society had and that Charles Koch is pushing will create an utterly unsustainable society, socially, economically, politically, and environmentally. Nancy McLean. Okay, we've got the background here, and I want to get into issues that are not in the book. And you Mm -hmm. said before we went on the air that there were actually a couple of chapters that were pulled from this. And you're very clear in Democracy and Change that you're staying mostly within the focus of Buchanan and his work and his theories. But the next step of it is the word stealth. Mm -hmm. So it isn't merely that he was pushing a particular philosophy – but that the philosophy is coming through in stealth and basically through lies. Uh, uh, yes and no. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're uh, you're, you're pack, hesitating on you that. Packed, well, because I think it's a kind of complicated terrain here because Buchanan was a serious academic and scholar. I mean, he was very committed to his work, and he did talk a lot about consent. And his, his first book was called The Calculus of Consent. And he basically said that no public 
purpose, no policy could be legitimate unless it had unanimous consent, which is an incredibly high bar, which means you could almost never do anything. So it is a little bit complicated, but over time and through multiple experiences of seeing that the people, if they understood what this libertarian vision was, the people would never support it in their majorities. He and some others, including Charles Koch, came to the conclusion that it would be a mistake to really advocate for the full-on version of this frontally. It would be political suicide, Buchanan said in the case of Social Security. And so what Buchanan came to advocate was changing the rules. And he said that people on his side had focused way too much on who rules, the question of who rules or which party, what have you, instead of thinking about the rules. And so he came to focus laser-like on constitutions, on laws and such. And so his strategy, which... Koch then kind of developed an operational plan from was to engage in various alterations of the rules to get these things through. So the classic example is Social Security. And I guess I guess you could say lies. I guess I'm being too much of an academic and backing up from that. But clearly, in the book, I talk about the early 1980s when Charles Koch's Cato Institute made Social Security privatization its top priority. And Buchanan advised on that effort. And he basically said, look, Social Security has the support of every demographic in the country, right? The rich and the poor, the black, the brown, and the white, men and women, Rust Belt, Sun Belt. He goes through it all. You know, nobody wants to see radical change in this. And so to advocate frontally for that, he said, would be political suicide. But instead of stopping there and saying, gosh, American people like this, guess we have to leave it in place and go on and do something else, he instead basically laid out a plan for, and you're right, I was backing up for the strong version of what I show in the book, but a plan to misinform the American people to make them believe that Social Security was insolvent and wouldn't be there so that people wouldn't support it as much because they'd think that they were going to be, frankly, screwed by it. And then also he went on to advocate a very complex and strategic divide and rule approach that would start with, in his terms, paying off the existing retirees and people about to retire to get them out of the fight because they'd be paying the closest attention. And then it ended with focusing on young people and trying to persuade them that they were providing, again, his terms, a tremendous welfare subsidy for the aged to turn young people against it. So yes, very strategic, very stealth-minded, and that kind of becomes the model in some ways for the things the Cokes are doing now to change the rules. So you think about the most radical gerrymander in history to misrepresent the will of the voters. You think about voter suppression on an extraordinary scale that we haven't seen since the post-Reconstruction South, the destruction of unions without saying to the public, we want to destroy unions, but basically adopting rules change that would make it impossible for them to operate. And climate science misinformation, which is being pushed very, very strongly by Coke-funded operations and also by the Mont Pelerin Society, which has been kind of remodeled as a Coke entity. Was it coming from Buchanan or Coke or someone else, this idea of creating, I guess the analogy might be mushrooms pop up, but underneath there's an entire universe of connection between the mushrooms. And if we call the mushrooms think tanks, endowed chairs columnists, if we call them pundits. I mean, the money's coming from Koch and other donors, the Mercers. But is that idea coming from Buchanan 
or somewhere else. I love that image of mushrooms because they do look separate and yet they're so connected. So Buchanan, as early as 1970, started calling for the creation of a counterintelligentsia. And that's a phrase we've heard before with the rise of right-wing think tanks, but his particular role in it has not been identified. And yet I think it was really pretty pivotal. He was in California for a brief time, and he worked with Ed Meese and with others in then-Governor Reagan's orbit in doing this, and then went on to work with many of the main so-called think tanks now, the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, et cetera, et cetera. So he played a pivotal role in many of these operations, although I do think that in the end, there's kind of a mystery toward the end of the book. I actually think Buchanan was playing with fire. I think he thought that he was so smart that he could somehow control this. So he was feeding essentially this kind of catnip to extremely right-wing wealthy donors like Charles Koch, suggesting that they could have a constitutional revolution and that they could make all these radical changes and so forth and so on. I don't know if he really understood how far Charles Koch would take it, but clearly it seemed that there was a split between the two men when Koch came to Buchanan's institution, George Mason University, in 1997 and kind of elbowed. James Buchanan out of his position there. So Koch really applied Buchanan's ideas with a vengeance. But it is not clear to me from the archival record that I was able to find whether Buchanan really stayed in to a significant degree after 1997. My sense is that he seeing that he was eclipsed by Koch, sort of shifted off to the side and went into quasi-retirement, and Koch's operatives took over at George Mason University, which is important to point out. This is a public university just across the river from the Potomac, and they set up the base camp for this very political operation there, and it operates to this day, and Charles Koch is the largest donor now at George Mason. How many people actually in that entire uh-huh. universe believe or understand what you're saying. Obviously, uh-huh. they're going to deny it to you and to the world uh-huh. because as I was reading this and came across familiar names like Newt Gingrich, mm-hmm. but more important than that, Dick Army, yeah. I kept thinking, who are the leaders, who are the employees, and do the employees understand what the leaders are doing? It's funny because when I came in, you you mentioned that you're going to come back at some point and ask me about the fervent reaction to this book from the right. And I think part of what's happening is that the architects of this project and some of the leading figures in it are really afraid that their own employees and the young people that they are sponsoring in internships by the you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds at this point that they might read it. Because if they read it, they're going to be shocked, I think, at what this plan is. Because again, these are people who are not honest and not open with the public. So I think that's part of the challenge for them. Let me ask you about certain things that have come down the pike, how they're related to this, and what you think, and this is purely speculative, what Buchanan would think of these things. Let's start with trickle down, Mm -hmm. which we know is a fraud. Buchanan didn't think it was a fraud. Buchanan thought, as he advised the Chilean dictatorship, that it was important to keep the hands of others out of the pockets of productive contributors, in his words. So to keep tax rates low, to have ideally in their dream world, government have very few responsibilities, national defense, enforcing the rule of law, and maintaining public order. But beyond that, the government should have few roles. So he opposed the minimum wage, as does Charles Koch and these others. When they tell the truth, they oppose the minimum wage. They oppose the ability to, to form unions and other things. So they really fervently believe that, that trickle-down economics is the way to go. 
they're rolling out Arthur Laffler, if people remember him. If your older listeners yeah, no. may remember him from the 1980s, we ended up with, you know, huge unprecedented deficits as a result of applying his ideas about how to do taxation and revenue. But Buchanan's operation, Trump did Laffler till the end and the Kochs are now again. I'm reminded of a friend of mine who was a right-wing economist studying down in San Diego. And after Reagan, it occurred to her as an economist that trickle-down was a fraud. Mm -hmm. And she eventually decided, oh, I'm going to leave that. She married a hippie and became an actress, (laughs) which I think is terrific. But she was able to see through the scam. We've gone through it twice. We went through Mm -hmm. it with Reagan and the Mm -hmm. crash and then went through it with Bush and the crash. And they're doing it again. Yes. Well, and I think it's also important to watch what they're doing at the state level. And it's wonderful to be here in Berkeley, which is an amazing place. And it's beautiful. And it's a, you know, it's an oasis of progressive policy, I know. But I'm here from North Carolina to maybe remind listeners that there are now 30 states in the U.S. now that are totally controlled by this radicalized Republican Party, where they're pushing through all these kinds of changes. And you can see these tax ideas being applied again and again in these states. And, and it didn't work in Kansas. That's what I was just going to say. In Kansas, even the Republicans in the legislature ended up rebelling against the governor because they could see that they were beggaring their state, again, creating an utterly unsustainable society. So they decided to do what they vowed they never would, raise taxes in order to keep a functioning society. But that is anathema to this cause. Well, one thing that's not in the book, I, I may, it's mentioned, of course, because uh-huh. it's a big part of the full story, and maybe it's in those chapters. Somewhere along the line, the public choice people got in bed with evangelical mm-hmm. Christians. What role did Buchanan play in that, if any, And how does that all fit together? Yeah, that is a fascinating story and was really intriguing to me as a researcher because so many of the key libertarians were not only atheists, but atheists who were contemptuous of people who had religious faith. So Ayn Rand is the classic case of that, but Buchanan was like that. He actually went into a red-faced rage once when one of his colleagues who was Catholic came in with ashes on his forehead on Ash Wednesday. And so there's an amazing story about that. And many of these other people who would go to Charles Koch's recruiting events for intellectuals and faculty members were apparently such aggressive atheists that, you know, they'd sometimes practically make the people who were religious believers cry or just, you know, create all these horrible situations. And yet people who believe thus now fly under the banner of conservatism, right? right, and are working with the religious right. So I think Charles Koch himself has been the most cynical about that. So he, in the 1970s, insisted that the people that he funded and particularly at the Cato Institute, be rigorously radical. He said they must never compromise. And so Cato then supported drug legalization, supported legalized prostitution, supported any kind of sex between consenting adults, basically a libertarian. But now that he got serious about power, now that has broken down. So now there's an alliance with the religious right for the purely cynical reason of getting enough people to the polls to make sure this agenda can go through. And Buchanan actually did anticipate that in some ways, too, even though he was so anti-clerical. In the 1970s, he began talking about how we might need 
evangelical faith, belief in God to restore social order. And he spent some time in Utah at Mormon institutions and worked with heritage, which was combining religious fundamentalism with free market fundamentalism and stuff. So it's a messy story, but I think no one has been quite as aggressive and cynical in courting the religious right as Charles Koch himself. In the Chilean coup, that was a combination of the aristocracy of Chile and the church, right? Well, I will say Buchanan's connection with Chile doesn't come in at the time of the coup, which was in 1973, but rather later in 1980. He was actually brought in to advise on how to create a new constitution. They called it the Constitution of Liberty that would lock in permanently the radical changes that the military junta had imposed on the population when people had no freedom. You know, when every form of collective organization was undermined, there was no freedom of the press, the universities were purged. And this constitution that Buchanan advised on has actually endured in its fundamentals to the present day, such that in 2013, Michelle Bachelet, a president who was elected by two-thirds of the Chilean people on a wide-ranging reform program found that she was unable to deliver on her platform because she said it was a constitution of locks and bolts that they had been straddled with, and the constitution prevented that. And the reason that Chilean story is so important and is a whole chapter in my book is because that kind of constitution is coming to America. The Koch's donor network and their the operations they fund and the allied Republican officials and the American legislature Legislative Exchange Council are actually organizing states to authorize a constitutional convention in America where they can radically rewrite our founding rules book, if you will. And most people don't know about that. And particularly, they don't know about it in what you might call blue states and and places like Berkeley, where they don't see this stuff up front. But it's moving along a pace. You need 34 states to have a constitutional convention. They now have 27. They had 28, but uh, Common Cause organized vigorously in New Mexico and subtracted one. But so that's 27 of 34 states needed. And what people need to understand is the Constitution specifies how you bring delegates together for a constitutional convention. But once they get there, they can do whatever they like. And the Koch network is coming into this constitutional convention with at least 10 liberty amendments, as they call them, that would radically change our government and society. And some of them are so far right that it might shock people, but they actually want to get rid of the progressive era reform, the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, which enabled the people to directly elect our senators. They want to go back to a system in which state legislators pick the senators. Now, the reason they like the state so much is that it's so easy for corporations to dominate state governments in a way that it's harder for corporations to dominate local or national politics. So it is really quite a radical enterprise. And people need to remember, we have not had a constitutional convention in America since 1787 when that document was crafted. So if this happens, it's going to be huge. And it's something that people need to watch. And my fear is that we have been so distracted by the Trump White House and the daily diet of outrageous tweets that people are not paying attention to things like this constitutional convention or what's going on in federal agencies. There's more to it than that. I read that the claim of the constitutional convention is this is the only way we can get a balanced budget amendment. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously everything is on the table, but in addition to that, these kinds of tax cuts, which we're seeing this week, will lead down the road in a balanced budget situation 
to the death of Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So this is a stealth move. It isn't merely, this is my Mm -hmm. understanding, it isn't merely about giving more money to the rich. It's about destroying the social safety net. You've expressed that perfectly. That is exactly what they are up to. And yes, this balanced budget amendment, you know, again, they, they often use these, these bromides about, you know, pro-growth policies or limited government or keeping more of your taxes in your pocket. And, you know, who doesn't, who, who doesn't agree with that? That sounds fine. But what they're actually pushing for is what you're describing, which is a radical reconstitution of government that would undermine, and you, you will think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. I'm a historian. <laughs> um, and I've been at this for many years, they are aiming at the whole 20th century model of government, going back to the progressive era with the ability to regulate corporations, to the New Deal and the ability to have uh, labor unions with rights guaranteed by the state and Social Security, as you say, and Medicare. That whole model is anathema to the Koch network, and they want to take it out. And so using something like a balanced budget amendment, which on first blush sounds good to people, but that has come up many times before Congress and And whenever people understood what it would actually mean, they recoiled from it and it didn't pass. And so what you're saying, I think, makes perfect sense, given what I've outlined in this book, that they would use those tax cuts to create the budget crisis that would then lead to the death of Social Security and Medicare. Where does Fox News fit in? Is Rupert Murdoch, you think, a leader, a follower, or somebody who's just not paying attention? And the same could also be said for the late Roger Ailes. Yeah. Well, I will say that my focus in this book, and again, I'm a historian, my work is archivally based. So I was focusing pretty laser-like on this idea of shackling democracy, which was Buchanan's contribution, if you will, to this movement. It was, you know, Charles Koch had the money, but Buchanan had the ideas. And his central idea was that for capitalism of the kind they wanted to thrive, democracy must be enchained. He was very clear about that. So that was my focus. And I wasn't, you know, looking into the media media as much. But I can say that from the 1950s forward, it's actually in the South, in the the white reaction to the civil rights movement, that you get this notion of the liberal media and that the liberal media must be, you know, uh, combated and that you need this alternative media and that the people are getting fake news and so forth and so on. And so that, that starts among segregationists and then becomes a wider phenomenon on the right. But this enterprise, this kind of coke led enterprise, it thinks hard about what are the obstacles to its achieving its ends. And one of those obstacles is a functioning honest media, right, frankly. And another obstacle is higher education. So they are also coming at higher education in a big way. The Charles Koch Foundation has put money into 400 universities in the U.S. now. George Mason University is the flagship campus right across the Potomac River from Washington, where the great majority of this work is carried out. But they are moving into many, many other states and setting up these implants, I think of them as, on campuses that they can then use to advance and defend their program in the political sphere. And it is really a Trojan horse for higher education, but it is another example of how this cause is willing to destroy, essentially, our institutions in order to achieve its ends. I mean, I've been thinking about this, and it seems to create an entire network of employees who are willing to throw away everything in order, I guess, to get a good salary. I mean, This is a very large group of people who seem to have absolutely no moral center. Well, I think that we make a mistake, though, in thinking that they don't 
have a morality because what I learned from my research is that there is a libertarian ethical system. What makes it hard for the rest of us to recognize it is that it is an unusual moral system. It is antithetical to all the major religious traditions of the world. It is hostile to fundamental elements of all of those those major religious traditions. But it is an ethical system, and it gives the people who are pursuing this agenda a confidence to do what they're doing and a sense that they are actually heroes, right? That they are going against, you know, the rest of us and that they are doing the right thing. But that morality, just to make it concrete, that libertarian morality says that, in effect, that it would be better to have people die from lack of health care than to be provided by the taxes paid for by others. And we just saw that play out in the Senate, where this Koch donor network, through the threat of primary challenges, has pushed such discipline on the Republican Party that it has become a kind of Leninist party of the right. The discipline is, is so intense and unprecedented. But if you think back to those three horrible bills, health care bills to, you know, in, in the Senate, not one of them pulled above 17 percent, I believe it was, in popularity. People thought, even Republicans, all Republicans, Republicans thought this was awful. They had majority support in no state in the union. And yet they were rushing to push this through. And you have to ask why. And that is because this Koch donor network is sure that this is the right thing. They have this messianic view of their own ability to shape our world in their image. And they were forcing these Republican politicians to toe the line in the belief that they have the right ethical system and the rest of us are kind of the fallen world in thinking that people can get something from government. So at that point, McCain suddenly realizes he's not going to live long and wakes up at least for a moment. But then again, he's in favor of the tax cuts. Yeah. Well, and if you remember another example of this this libertarian morality is you, you could go back to sort of the greatest quotes or the at least the most famous quotes, not the greatest, of Paul Ryan, who is known for saying things like school lunches leave children's bellies full, but their souls empty. <laughs> you know? But again, these true believers in this ideology, that is how they think, that somehow you are diminished by having a school lunch or food stamps or unemployment insurance or, you know, many, many other things. So they do think this way. With John McCain, yes, he backed up and he he also kept talking about the rules. Why don't we do things in the usual way? I want to go back to the Senate rules. I want to make amendments, you know. And so he's talking about this procedurally because they're doing at the national level what they've done in states like mine, which is totally break with traditional rules about how you operate politics, that you have public hearings on bills, that you have consultation, et cetera, et cetera. They are just rushing things through breakneck in order to get their way. And what I find so frustrating among Republicans like John McCain or Orrin Hatch, who also once complained about these people, he said, they're not Republicans. They're not conservatives. They're radical libertarians. I despise these people. That's what he said when they ran a primary challenge against him. But then he ended up towing the line and basically stealing Obama's, taking away the chance of a sitting president to nominate a Supreme Court justice. So So what I would love to see ordinary voters do and journalists do more of is challenging these Republicans. You know, John McCain, John McCain, tell us what's really going on, you know, in the Republican caucus. How do these donors work? Why is this so effective? And Charlie Dent, you know, a moderate who's leaving, there's a kind of a 
you know, a, a purging of the remaining moderates. There aren't that many, but of the remaining ones in the Republican Party. But I think that they should not be able to go just gently into that good night, but they should be asked hard questions about what is going on in their party. How does this work? Why are they leaving? What have they seen? They need to tell the rest of us because there is a very, very radical, frightening plan that's underway in this Republican Party, and the rest of us in America have a right to know about it. There's also the fact that the Democrats are controlled by donors as yes. well. I mean, they might be donors who don't see that America. Maybe they see an America closest, closer mm -hmm. to what we see, but they're also under similar pressures to follow the donors rather than to even to follow the people who would support them, their own base, which on some level could be over 50 percent of the population. Yeah, it is a deeply problematic situation, and there's not going to be an easy way out of this. I mean, I do think of this as an all-hands-on-deck moment. If you believe in democracy, it's time to pay attention and put away the Facebook and put away the Netflix and start thinking about, you know, what is happening and what needs to be done. I do think that there is a great strength that can also be a reason for people not to panic in the fact that this, the single most important finding of my book is that this Coke donor network is doing what it's doing in the way that it's doing it because they understand that they are a permanent minority and that's why they have to work for stealth. So I think that means the key thing for people who support democracy and who want to see government work for the people, the, the key task is to inform that latent majority that the right is so afraid of and to activate it. And so I think that that can be done but it is going to be a big project and I have to say as a historian I really do believe that this moment that we're in right now is akin to to the 1860s and to the 1930s in terms of these deep battles in our culture between very anti-democratic property supremacist forces and more popular kind of we the people side of the polity. And we saw that in the 1860s and the 1930s, and those anti-democratic forces were not defeated just by defensive action, but also by having a more robust vision of democracy and what it could do and citizenship. And so I think that needs to be part of how we get out of this situation too. There's one other question which mm -hmm. involves a rather lumbering elephant in the room, and I'm not sure where exactly it fits. And that, of course, is Donald Trump. Yeah, it's a puzzle, but I think it's also one that our mainstream media is not helping us very much in solving, because I think most of our media have attention deficit disorder, and they follow the latest thing. And so we have a situation in which most journalists and news editors treat the Cokes as though they were the story that went up to 2015 and ended there. And now it's Donald Trump all the time. And as a result, they're not asking really important questions that the people need to have answered. Questions like, if there's such an opposition between Donald Trump and the Koch network, why did Donald Trump appoint 70% of his senior appointees, according to one longstanding Koch researcher, come out of these Koch network operations, including most obviously his vice president, Mike Pence, but also many cabinet secretaries, uh, Scott Pruitt at the EPA, even Mike Pompeo at the CIA. Many of these people come out of the Koch network. And while Donald Trump is distracting the nation with his daily tweets and daily outrages and offenses to long-established norms, this agenda is moving along 
quite quickly in federal agencies, in the states that this radicalized Republican Party controls, and in the courts. So I'm actually urging people at, uh, you know, when I uh, speak and do events, to try and experiment and think of it as a timeout for Trump. You know, first of all, if any parent had this person as a child, they'd put him in timeout for his behavior. But second of all, he is engaged in the politics of distraction, and we are falling for it. And the more we talk about Donald Trump, the less we're focusing on this radical program of change that's going through. So if people would just take a week and ignore every single Donald Trump tweet, all the news about his tweets, all the outrageous things he does that are covered in the news, and instead focus on what's happening in your state. Look at what's going through in the courts. What are the cases that are coming up to the Supreme Court now? And there's quite a few of them, and they're they're really pivotal. And also, particularly what's going on in these federal agencies, the Department of Labor, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Justice, all of these and more are being radically remade as we are being distracted by this man's tweets. A lot of people, even on the left, are now saying, we got to get rid of Trump and we'll take Pence. And yet Pence is the Coke guy. Mm -hmm. And at least with Trump, we've got some incompetence there. I agree with you, although I I do think Trump is more frightening on the international front because he's so volatile and so frankly, ignorant and incurious. And, you know, we know the rest. He's not a very good diplomat, shall we say. So I think Pence might be less likely to start a war recklessly than Trump. But I thoroughly agree that that Pence would be a much more dangerous president in the sense that he might actually pay attention, read the reports and be competent in working with Congress to move through that part of the agenda. And if your listeners haven't heard it, I'd also recommend Jane Mayer, who did the, the great book Dark Money on the well, money trail of the coast. She's Pokes. got the new one on That's Pence. what I was going to say. Yeah, she has a new long piece in The New Yorker on Mike Pence, and it's really, really important to read for anybody who thinks that we should be rushing to impeachment to get rid of Trump. Have you spoken with her? I have emailed with her, yes. She's a wonderful person. She's a great journalist and a very generous soul, and she's doing really critical work. Did she talk to you at all about your book? She actually tweeted about my book, yeah, and so said something nice about that. But I also, yeah, I had an exchange with her after I started getting attacked by the libertarian right because I knew she had been and that the Koch network had hired private investigators to try to dig up dirt on her, to smear her after her book came out. And so I wanted to know how she dealt with this operation. And, And how did she and how are you? The basic advice was keep on writing. (laughs) (laughs) That that was the core advice, which I agree. And that's essentially what I've done, too. This Koch network has learned how – they actually, by the way, they have a phrase for harassing people who obstruct them. They call it raising the transaction costs. of dissent. So they will hound anyone who exposes what they do and tries to alert the people to what they do. So they have pilloried me in their press and in their on their media sites. And they do so dishonestly. Many of them had never read the book before they attacked it. And they even you know, admitted that. And they also fail at Ethics 101. They don't inform readers that they have been heavily subsidized by the Charles Koch Foundation or other elements of this donor network. And so they're trying to kill a book which basically exposes what this cause is all about. So it has been 
eye-opening. And it's also been interesting to find out, sadly, really, truly, how corrupted some of our established institutions are. So, for example, just yesterday, the Wall Street Journal went with a story that was full of misinformation. It was a a cheap drive-by attack on me, and the person who published it who's an assistant editor, uh, editorial page editor, I think, of the, the Wall Street Journal, he just went with it to try to smear the book, to try to kill it, because they know that I'm up for a National Book Award, and they want to make sure it appears that that, that doesn't happen, again, because I think they don't want people to read the content of this book for themselves, because if people read the content of this book, they're going to know a lot about what these guys are up to, and it doesn't look very good for the operatives if people know that. About 10 or 12 years ago, I started a blog called Trashing Brooks and Tierney. (laughs) (laughs) And what I did was I took apart, this just for fun, I Uh just started taking apart their columns in the Times. Mm -hmm. And what I found, particularly in the case of Tierney, who focused on school choice, Mm -hmm. is that every time he quoted an academic or a paper, Mm -hmm. you could take that professor and look at their donors And it was part of a group of four or five families. Mm. And that was the same thing that was true with Brooks. Wow. Yeah, I have to say, there were times when I was researching this book where I literally felt nauseated when I began to realize the scale of all this, of how much money has been pumped into this, and how the money just enables, I can't remember, I I don't think I said this earlier, I meant to and got distracted, but Buchanan, when he was talking about building up a counterintelligentsia in, started talking about that in the 1970s, he also said that what was needed, and this is his phrase, he said that they needed to build a gravy train. That was his phrase, a gravy train, to get, in his language, to get men committed to these ideas and to get these ideas out there. And he was very persuasive. He worked with many of these right-wing foundations and many corporations that were on the right. You know, General Electric would be the most obvious. But they really did set about opening the spigots to draw people in to this, you know, hard-right libertarian politics and get them into to fund their educations, to, you know, get them to do master's degrees and PhDs and get credentialed and go out to these think tanks and these other operations. And now you have this giant gravy train of people, of operatives who are doing this. And, you know, they have spread through the media and now into schools creating these outposts that, you know, they kind of purport to be ordinary academics. But they are also working very closely with this political operation. Nancy McLean, we're pretty much out of time here. But, you know, here we are in Berkeley (laughs) and people go out and, you know, hold their sign up saying Black Lives Matter, and they even go to Washington, D.C. with pussy hats. The question is, does any of that mean anything? If you're looking at the Kochs and this web of operatives, as you call them, which is almost, you know, well, it is planetist. Mm -hmm. It is what they did. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are we doing? Well, I think that all of these things do matter because I think any time people stand up for human dignity and say that they will not be stepped on anymore and stand together with one another in solidarity to do that, I think that is a big step forward. And so I think that that is really crucial that that people are doing that. And I have taken inspiration. I've talked to many groups of people, particularly of women who became active after the uh, election in 2016 and who are doing great work out in their communities now and trying to raise consciousness and, and change our politics. So I think all of that 
that work is important. I will say, though, that one thing that I've learned from this research and I feel very strongly about is that, you know, every crisis can also be an opportunity, right? And there's a, it's been a long time now on the left where various people have felt that we work too much in silos, right? And we don't talk to one another. And, you know, the environmentalists are here and the labor unions are there and the civil rights activists are there and the feminists are there and so forth and so on. And of course, people have tried to pull that together with green jobs or, you know, environmental justice or Black Lives Matter has a very strong economic platform as well. But the silos endure. And what I need to convey to people or I'm trying to with this book and and my appearances is that this Coke cause is coming at, and again, I know it sounds exaggerated, but it's not, the whole 20th century model of government on which every one of these causes depends. And so even if we don't recognize ourselves in one another, and even if those alliances can be difficult and strained, no group of all those groups that I just mentioned and more, including LGBTQ people, is going to be able to do what they've counted on doing if this Coke operation succeeds. And so people need to, I believe, come together and start having the challenging conversations that could help us rebuild civil society because it's the only hope of fending this thing off. Well, I keep thinking about those people who supported Jill Stein. I mean, that's going to come up here, who still trash Hillary as a neoliberal and okay, yeah, fine, but I can't talk to them. I have to say, yeah, I think it's quite sad how well the left can assemble into a circular firing line, right? <laughs> and and think that the main enemy, it's almost, you know, is the one closest, you know, most nearby rather than the, the one that's more distant. And certainly, you know, I think the Democratic Party, I realize I didn't quite answer your earlier question right. about the Democratic Party, but I think there will have to be a major renewal of that party or, you know, other forces in our public life in order to deal with this challenge. So that is true, but I think that it certainly doesn't help matters to think that the greatest enemy in the world is the neoliberals in the Democratic Party because, you know, we have that in part because the right works so hard to free up the use of money in politics. And Buchanan's, you know, students were very important in making the case for the ideas that became Citizens United to say corporate speech you know, must not be restricted and so forth. And so Democrats have to compete on that ground. And the place that they go is the financial sector, because that's where they're going to get the money. And that is deeply problematic, given how the financial sector behaves and what it's done to the rest of our economy. Those are all issues that need to be dealt with. But I think right now, someone I was just talking to used the phrase, it's the democracy stupid, you know, and people need to realize that these fundamental challenges need to be wrestled with. And the people next to you are probably not your main enemy in that. Nancy McLean, two final questions. The first is, what were those two excise chapters? (laughs) And the second is, have you started working on another project? So I was saying earlier when we first started talking that there were two, that the original book was twice as long as this one, and that there were two chapters that I was urged to take out in order to contain the length and to kind of stand on the strength of my archival research. But those two chapters dealt with the period between 1997, when Charles Koch makes this huge contribution to George Mason, and what we see today. And basically what I was showing in those two chapters is how this kind of diaspora of people who had been trained 
trained at George Mason University in these ideas from Buchanan went out and staffed so many different operations of what we're dealing with right now and and we're kind of you know trained in this kind of strategic approach and it was very painful to take them out because I'd worked very hard to put them together but I think the book stands on its own without them because it be, doing those chapters made it clear to me that what I talk about in the historical sections of the book is exactly what is driving and informing the operational strategy and endgame of the Coke network today in a way that we haven't seen in other books. So it, it was worthwhile to do it. And I am also sharing those chapters with others who can use them. So that they're, they're not, they haven't just gone into oblivion. As for other projects, this is unlike any other work of scholarship I've done in my career because you know, almost coincidentally, really, I stumbled onto this research trail and just smelled that there was something important here. And so I stayed on it and it led me to this place, which is really this profound threat to democracy as we know it in America. And I feel that this is a really urgent message for people to hear and to understand. And so I am just doing everything I can to get this message out, you know, to speak to various groups, to do radio interviews like this, to to do what I need to, to inform people. So I'm not even thinking at this point about what my next book will be, because I think my main mission right now is to help people understand what we're being faced with so that they will be in a position to know how to deal with it. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>